starting, my most, something I'm proud of that I accomplished. Once upon a time, there was a family. We want to take Bob on a snipe hunt. And then I fell in, and but I was able to get out. It's time for The Appleseed, a show filled with all kinds of stories for you and your family. Tall tales, fairy tales, folk tales, personal and family tales, and more. Here at The Appleseed, we believe in the power of great stories to change your world. A great story can be a safe place to take refuge. It can be a place where risk is possible, adventure just around the corner. Whatever kind of story you might need right now, today, we've probably got one that'll fit the bill. So cozy up and take a listen. Invite someone else to listen along as well. I'm your host, Sam Payne. And today we've got all kinds of great stuff for you. We're going to bring you a story from the South Carolina storyteller, Tim Lowry. He's going to tell a story about a job as a preacher held by his dad. And we're going to hear an old time radio adventure too. Now, both of these are stories about people working together and what that teaches them about themselves and about the folks alongside whom they are working. Now, sometimes when we talk about getting to know someone or getting to know a group of people with whom we'll be working or going to school or spending a lot of time. We're talking about get-to-know-you games or activities. Those can be great ways to find out about people that you don't know. Think about when school starts and you're sitting in a new group of kids and the teacher decides to throw the class kind of an icebreaker activity. Everyone has to share their favorite Olympic sport or their favorite pasta shape or something, you know. Or maybe you have a job where the boss decides to host a picnic or an interdepartmental cooking competition. It's all to build community and to help people get to know each other. But another way to get to know the people around you is to share a common goal and to work toward it. Now think about if you've ever had to do a team project with a bunch of other students you don't know. Now don't groan. Some of those can turn out pretty well and can be fun memories. Like maybe in physics, you had to build a bridge out of toothpicks to see how many dumbbells from the high school weight room the bridge could hold. Maybe you had to design a theme park out of Oreos and Twizzlers that represented the most important amendments in the Constitution. I mean, those are good times, right? I remember once I was on a group project where we had to stay up for 72 hours without sleep and then make notes on our experiences. That was an interesting group project. And I remember even having to collaborate on a radio show in a speech and debate class. That laid the foundations for some fun things for me and was a fun collaboration with people that I didn't really know very well. Well, our stories today talk about how people learn to work with each other and what they can accomplish. You've probably heard the saying, if you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go together. That's the idea in our stories today. Whether you're running a church like the father of South Carolina storyteller, Tim Lowry. And when Miss Kim heard about my science project, she said, Pastor, a word. My dad was quickly learning that this always meant more work for him. Or whether you're planning a citizen's attack on a foreign enemy in wartime, like the characters in the old-time radio drama version of the classic story, The African Queen. Mr. Allnut, uh, you're a machinist, aren't you? Uh, Kind of a fixer, miss, jack of all trades, like they say. Could you make a torpedo? Just a moment from an old radio drama version of the classic story, The African Queen, made into a movie in 1951 starring Humphrey Bogart and Catherine Hepburn. Later in the hour, we're going to bring you that audio drama. The audio drama was made in 1952, and it's a real thrill, and we're super excited about it. In the meantime, let's get started. Our first story today is from acclaimed storyteller Tim Lowry. Tim takes us back to his childhood in Kentucky, where his father, a pastor, starts preaching at a new church, and how that means working with the formidable Sunday school teacher, Miss Gim. Now, with pure hearts and some creativity and a lot of patience, the church begins to grow. Here's the story. Tim Lowry recorded live in the Appleseed studio. Happy to bring it to you. The year was 1976. Bicentennial celebration for the United States. 
And my dad, I grew up a preacher's kid. My dad was going to be candidate at Putney Bible Baptist Church. That meant that he was going to visit as a, a candidate pastor. He was going to preach a model sermon, and then after church, there would be a very serious business meeting and a vote by the membership to see if they wanted to issue an official call to have him be their full-time minister. Since it was 1976, in the bicentennial year, my mom dressed the entire family appropriately. I was wearing white alligator shoes, I had on bright red pants. I had a plaid jacket in red, white, and blue. My white shirt, and I had a bow tie that was so big it framed my entire face. I looked like a four-foot Lawrence Welk. And then next to me was my sister. She was wearing a bright red dress with anklet socks. My mother had on a very conservative navy blue dress with a bright red kerchief around her neck and my father was wearing a navy blue suit but he had a red white and blue American flag tie and as we got into the car to travel across the mountain from where we lived to Putney Bible Baptist Church I grew up in the state of Kentucky so everything's across the mountain one way or another where I grew up when we got ready to go across the mountain my mom put my sister and I in the back seat and she said be on your best behavior we are going to church and daddy really needs this job <laughs> So we were threatened to be on the very best behavior. When we got to the church, my mom took us in, and uh, we were shown around for just a little brief time. And then it was time for the service to start. And my mom sat with me and my sister, third row, right side. That's always where the pastor's wife sits. Third row, right side. She sat on the aisle. I sat in the pew next to my mom. Next to me was my sister. And next to my sister was her son, Tom Jr. Now, I was six years old. My sister was four years old, but she was already a mommy. When she was a little girl, you would ask her, what do you want to be when you grow up? And she always said the same thing, I want to be a mommy. By the time she was 10, she had 100 children because she was a doll collector. And she had all kinds of dolls. She didn't like Barbie dolls. She liked big, hard rubber baby dolls. So currently, she was the mother of Tom Jr. He was this big doll. He didn't do anything. His hair was painted on. His eyes didn't roll around in his head. He didn't go wet, wet or anything like that. All he did was you could just grab him by the stiff legs and bend him out straight and stand him up. Or then you could bend him and sit him down. That's all that he did. And he had a big hole in his right hand because we had accidentally closed his hand in the car door once and it chopped all of his fingers off. And so she would just put band-aids over the holes and say, don't make fun of Tom Jr. He's handicapped. <laughs> so she had Tom Jr. sitting next to her in the pew at Putney Bible Baptist Church. And she was a very good mommy. My dad, being a preacher, he knew uh, the man who ran the local Bible bookstore. And he'd given him a sample New Testament. My dad had the store embossed Tom Jr.'s name in gold down on the front of the Bible. So she had that for Tom Jr. She had a diaper bag. We had a friend who was an obstetrics nurse. And she would give my sister all kinds of samples from the obstetrics unit at the hospital. She had bottles and little diapers for Tom Jr. She would sit there next to Tom Jr., open the Bible for him, point to the passage my dad was preaching from, hold the hymn book for him. And about halfway through my dad's sermon, my sister would poke that doll and say, I said, be quiet. <laughs> she was quite the show. Well, on this particular momentous occasion, my dad was preaching away and I saw my sister bouncing in her seat and I realized, oh, Tom Jr. has to go to the bathroom. Well, when we had been shown around the facilities just before the service, I noted where the bathrooms were located. It was a little country church, and you went down the aisle. In the back of the church, there was just the tiniest entry area, and in that space, there were 14 stairs that went way down to a basement. Then you walked back the entire length of the basement where there was little one holer tucked away, basically right underneath the pulpit where my daddy was preaching. And my sister looked at me, and I whispered to her where the bathroom was, and she grabbed Tom Jr. by the hand, and just, and not to disturb my mother, she just slipped out the opposite side of the pew and went out the back of the church, and I heard Tom Jr.'s head clunking on every step as she went down the 14 stairs into the basement, and then eventually I heard the door to the bathroom latch. There was a sign over the toilet in that little bathroom that had been hand-printed, and it said, Do not flush during sermon. Because if you did, all the water rushing through the pipes, everybody knew exactly where you were. Well, she went in there, and I thought everything was taken care of. My sister has always been very independent. 
And she could handle herself in the bathroom, but she was only four years old, and she couldn't finish the paperwork. So all of a sudden, my mother, my mother didn't even see her leave. I guess it's mother's intuition. All of a sudden, my mother just turns and looks at me, and one eyebrow went up, and I could translate, that meant, where is your sister? Well, I was the pastor's son, so I just leaned over and quoted her a Bible verse. All we like sheep have gone astray. <laughs> my mom stood up because she knew something was about to happen, and she turned around and she started to walk out of the church. Now she's facing pretty much the entire congregation, and from down in the depths of the basement, we hear my sister yell out from underneath the pulpit, Mommy! My mother turns beet red, and she picks up her pace, and she starts to walk to the back of the church. And then, just in case anybody's wondering, she yells out, I already wiped Tom Jr. He's fine. <laughs> My mom went down the 14 stairs in the back of the church, walked the length of the basement, locked herself into the bathroom, and did not come out the rest of the service. <laughs> When my dad had pronounced the amen, he took me by the hand, and we went downstairs and joined them in complete humiliation. We stayed down in the basement while the church conducted the business meeting. It was touch and go. It was about 50-50. But then a missionary lady who attended the church, her name was Helen Gimberling. I learned later that all the kids called her Miss Gim. She taught Sunday school there. She stood up and gave an impassioned speech on behalf of my father. She said, well, he preaches an excellent sermon, and he's proven that his children are normal. And so I vote that we call him as our pastor. And that tipped the balance, and they voted to call my dad to be the pastor of Putney Bible Baptist Church. Hey, this is Sam, and you're listening to The Appleseed. There's more of this story coming up, but at this point in Tim Lowry's performance, the story becomes less about Tim's dad and more kind of a string of stories about Miss Gim. And here's what I love about this. Miss Gim, who may at first have been perceived by Tim's family as an adversary, becomes this legendary ally. And Miss Gim stories become part of the canon of stories around the Lowry family dinner table. Maybe you know someone like that, someone who came into your life as kind of an adversary, but became an important ally in the work you did together. In this case, that's the growing of a church community. But I've interrupted enough. Let's get back to the performance studio and some Miss Gim stories. Tim Lowry on the Appleseed. They came down to give us the joyous news and immediately formed a receiving line. And as everybody went through the line, Miss Gim came by. I, I wish you could know Miss Gim. She is on to her heavenly reward now, but she was a marvelous woman. Uh, a prominent visage in finger curls, yes. She was the kind of Sunday school teacher who if she caught you chewing gum in church, not only would you not chew gum in church, you just never would chew gum again the rest of your life. <laughs> That's the kind of Sunday school teacher she was. And she was last in the receiving line, and when she came by to shake my dad's hand, she leaned in and she said, Pastor, a word. And my dad said, yes, Miss Gim. And she said, uh, now that we have a, a full-time leader for our congregation, I wondered if the first order of business shouldn't be for you to organize a group of ladies to volunteer to form a nursery so that the young ones, the infants, uh, could be taken downstairs during your preaching so as not to be a disturbance. I was particularly thinking of little ones like um, Tom Jr. <laughs> And my dad said, oh, yes, Miss Gim, I, I think we can do that. And so he very dutifully organized a group of ladies who could start volunteering in, in the nursery. And all the little, little children were taken down to the nursery when he preached. Now, I got to know Miss Gim much better a few weeks later, the first time my dad conducted a communion service for the church. Now, I was six years old, and I heard the words of the communion service but I didn't really understand what they meant. They were very familiar to me because I heard them from my dad all the time. He would say, this is my body which is broken for you. This is my blood which is poured out for you. I heard those words, but I didn't really understand what they meant. To be completely honest, I was waiting impatiently for church to be over because after church, there would always be some little tiny glasses full of Welch's grape juice left on the table up front by the pulpit. And I would go up there and put my elbow up on the table and pretend that I was a cowboy from the TV show Gunsmoke and I'd grab those little glasses and throw back some whiskey shots. That's what I like to do after church. 
And so after my dad had conducted the communion service, I went up front and I grabbed my first whiskey shot and I heard a voice behind me say, young man, put that down. And I turned around to see the biggest lady I had ever seen in my entire life. Miss Skim took the tray of communion wafers and she reached into her sleeve of her dress and she pulled out a handkerchief and she laid it out on the communion table and she poured all of the wafers onto it. She laid down the tray. She folded up her handkerchief like a little envelope and then took her big ample elbow and crunched up all the communion wafers. She lifted that little bag of crumbs. She scooped up the tray with the leftover tiny glasses of Welch's grape juice and she said, follow me. We walked out of the back of the church. My sister was trailing along behind by this point and we went into the graveyard. And she said, these elements have been set aside for a sacred purpose, and we do not play cowboy or gunsmoke with them. We will pour the extra grape juice that has not been used onto the flowers here in the graveyard for a little added moisture, and we will sprinkle these breadcrumbs on the grave so that the birds can peck at them. And I thought, how strange. Why go through all of that trouble? Why don't we just throw it away? And she said, absolutely not. These have been set aside for a sacred purpose. And as the birds peck at these crumbs, then they fly into the clouds and we see them going heavenward. And remember that our loved ones who are buried here will be resurrected and we will be caught up to meet them in the air. And so we shall ever be in heaven with the Lord. And my sister said, dang, our daddy's the new preacher, but she's the boss of this church. And nothing could have been truer. Miss Gim built that church. That's both a figurative statement and a literal statement. She had been uh, called to missions and had thought that she would go to the foreign field. But in those days, a mission board would not send a single woman to the wilds of Borneo. So she came to the mountains of Kentucky instead. Same thing. And she had started a Sunday school to teach the local children. And as the Sunday school grew into a full-fledged church, they had hired my daddy to be the pastor. She had helped build the meeting house, the building. It was built into a bank. So on one side, there was a big high block wall to make up the basement. And she had helped lay that block. There were stories about how she had come to the work site one day with a basket full of sandwiches for the volunteer workmen. And there was this big, hefty mountain man named Hager Ball. And he was struggling with a 50-pound sack of concrete mix. And she hopped out of the car and set her sandwich basket aside. And she said, oh, my dear Hager, are you struggling with that? Let me be of some assistance. And she picked up 50 pounds of concrete mix, threw it on her shoulder, shinnied up the ladder, and dropped it down at the top of the wall. And he was so shamed that the missionary woman could outlift him, he never came to church again the rest of his life. <laughs> she was a tough lady. She could wield a gun, too. Oh, yeah. One night she was kept awake because there were two whippoorwills having a conversation in the woods behind her house. And she put a single shell and a shotgun and went out and dispatched both with a single shot. And you might think, oh, I can't believe that missionary lady shot those birds. Actually, that turned out to be providential, a blessing in disguise. She didn't know it, but there were moonshiners in those woods. They cut through her property about every night. And when they heard that that missionary woman could wield a gun, they stayed well enough away from her property. It probably saved her life. Miss Gim was a marvelous Sunday school teacher, and we loved to visit her house. She had three cats, only two of which, uh, well, one of which was alive. The other two were cast iron doorstops. And the real cat was named Mr. Gray, and then the cast iron doorstops, one at the front door and one at the back door, they were named Gog and Magog. For, yes. <laughs> we would always go and visit Gog and Magog as little children. And after... Uh, we had that conversation about the elements of communion in the graveyard. Miss Gim came to my dad and she said, Pastor, a word. My dad said, yes, Miss Gim. She said, I wondered if we couldn't start a junior church service so that uh, young people could be uh, taught about different traditions in the church, baptism, communion, that type of thing, and learn the real meaning of these very special ceremonies. My dad said, oh, yes, Miss Gim. I think that would be a very good idea. And so he dutifully found another group of volunteers who could start a junior church service for the older kids. Miss Skim was very kind to us Sunday school kids, and if you did her any favor, she always rewarded you handsomely. If you raked leaves for her or, or helped her around her house, she didn't just give you a quarter or a pat on the back. She gave you a whole Hershey bar. Oh, yes. And so one day I was older. I was probably about 10 by this point. There was a snow on and there was no school. 
And so my sister and I had gone to the church to play in the fellowship hall while my dad worked in the office. And the mail, the post office was just down the road from the church. When the mail was delivered to the post office, I told my dad, I said, I'm going to go down to the post and get Miss Gim's mail and I'll carry it up the hill to her so she doesn't have to get out into the snow. My dad said, that'd be a very good idea. So I went down to the post office and picked up her mail. I was wearing cowboy boots. So I was trying to climb up a snowy hill. She lived in a house way up on the hill above our church. I was trying to climb this hill in slick bottom cowboy boots. And I'd get about six feet up the hill and I'd slide back down. And I'd get about 10 feet up the hill and I would slide back down. By the time I got to the top of the hill, I was covered in wet snow. My boots were packed with snow. The mail was a mess. And when she finally saw me at her door, she flung the door open. She kicked Magog aside and said, oh, please come right in, come right in. My goodness, you're going to die of frostbite. And she thumped me into a chair and pulled off my boots and pulled off my socks. And I was so embarrassed that my Sunday school teacher could see my bare feet. And she could see that I was embarrassed. So she went and got a pan of hot water and she put it on the floor and she said, here, put your feet into this water and then I won't be able to see them. Well, the water was clear, but somehow that fooled me and it worked. I put my feet in the water and it felt nice and then I wasn't embarrassed anymore. And she said, you're going to want something to do. Uh, look through the window at the birds. And she handed me a pair of binoculars outside her window. She had this bird feeder against the hemlock tree. And because she lived on the mountain right next to the woods, all the wild birds would come to the feeder. And I sat there looking through the binoculars. There were cardinals and red, red bird cardinal, blue jays, uh, lots of chickadees. She didn't, like, she didn't like the blue jays. She said that they were uh, aggressive. They chased all the other birds off the feeder. She called them a result of the fall. She said they were glorified crows. Yes, she didn't like them. She'd pay you a dollar for shooting bluebirds. Yeah, yeah, you give a dollar for every dead bluebird you brought her. That's how you made your summer camp money. You'd shoot birds for the missionary lady. Yeah. Well, I watched that, and she showed me in the National Geographic. She always kept a stack of National Geographics next to the window. She showed me an article about Jane Goodall and how she studied wildlife and the apes and all of that. I was very taken with that. And so I asked my dad if I could have a bird feeder like Miss Skim. And he said, yeah, yeah, that'd be a good science project for you. We'll put one up, and then you could keep a journal and keep track of all the birds that come to the feeder. Well, I had read about Jane Goodall at Miss Gim's house in the National Geographic, how she named all the apes that she was studying, and I wanted to name the birds. But there were lots of birds coming to the feeder, and I, I couldn't think up enough names for all of them. And my dad, being the preacher that he is, he flopped open the Bible and said, let me introduce you to the genealogies. <laughs> and so I would just copy names out of the Bible and give assignments to the birds. We had a pair of cardinals that were named Abraham and Sarah, and we had a second pair of car cardinals named Isaac and Rebecca. There were so many chickadees, you couldn't give them individual names, so we just called them children of Israel. And we would <laughs> write them in the journal, children of Israel feeding at four o'clock in the afternoon. And when Miss Kim heard about my science project, she said, pastor, a word. My dad was quickly learning that this always meant more work for him. <laughs> hey, this is Sam. And those Miss Gim stories from Tim Lowry go on and on. Tim told us a whole bunch of them. And it's likely we'll bring you more of them in future episodes of this show. Again, one of the things I love about the performance you just heard is the way that an adversary becomes an ally. And such an ally that her stories resonate in the head of storyteller Tim Lowry even today. Maybe there's someone in your life like that, and maybe the tales and legends of that person are worth telling. In just a moment, I'll visit around the desk with our producer, Brian Tanner, and one of our assistant producers, Lacey Olson, for a little talkback about that story, followed by another story, a famous story of two people working together in unexpected ways. It's The African Queen, a radio drama version of that story. The radio drama made in 1952 and still packs a wallop today. It's a lot of excitement coming up on The Appleseed. I'm Sam Payne. A moment ago, it was our pleasure to hear the great South Carolina storyteller, Tim Lowry. 
visiting us in the Appleseed studio, telling a story about how his dad became the pastor of a new church and about an unlikely ally in Miss Gim. It was a pleasure to hear some Miss Gim stories from Tim Lowry as well. And to talk a little bit about Tim's performance, uh, I'm uh, joined around the desk by uh, our producer, Dr. Brian Tanner, and uh, one of our assistant producers, Lacey Olson. Guys, thanks for joining me. Hey, great to be here. Yeah, good to be here. Where does a story like that take you? Lacey? This brings back so many memories of just the church life in general that I've grown up in, you know, <laughs> being around all those kind of people and all the events. It's so interesting because I'm not of the same denomination that he is, but yeah. I found so many similarities. Mm-hmm. That I was right. Like, wow. Everybody, we're all kind of the same. Churches, yeah. we church, all kind of have right? this. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the it's same church. types of characters yeah. and oh, the yeah. same mortifying child antics and yeah exactly yeah. we're all we're all just trying to listen a little bit and worship in our own way and yeah. we all got the same things that interrupt sometimes <laughs> it is it is cool isn't it how you look across denominations and see yourself over there you know? yeah see yourself oh, yeah. and your family and the people with whom you go to church yeah. Brian, what about you? Where does this story take you? Well, I I just naturally thought of the aforementioned mortifying <laughs> child <laughs> moments, and I I really like it when churches make space for children. You know, yeah. you could you could contend that oh, you're not able to have like the the quiet meditative experience that uh, maybe you're searching for if there are children all around you. But I think they really bring something special, yeah. and, um, and I think that when something mortifying does happen, you know, you can just kind of roll with it and just be like, you know, <laughs> like this is a, a person in progress, you yeah. know, and and they're learning. And I remember being in, in church one time when they kind of gave a moment for children to come and kind of share some yeah. faith-promoting experience that they'd had. Yeah. And people got up and they shared things that were very simple but very, very touching, you know, and, and I was liking it a lot. But uh, one kid got up and said— recently I lost my favorite bunny stuffed animal and I looked everywhere for it and I looked and I looked and I didn't know where I was going to find it. And then a big pause and I thought they were going to say like, oh, I I prayed or I got help from an adult or something. And she's like, and you know what? That damn bunny was behind the door. (laughs) (laughs) And then... (laughs) And then just went and sat down. Yeah. And apologies for the for the language there, but you know, documentary truth of, sure. of what the person said. And I thought, you know, they didn't wrap it up in a bow. Yeah. They they didn't give the spiritual lesson or whatever. But I still like that they felt like they could use their voice, and sure. they could tell their story, and that their experience mattered. Yeah, you know? and those become those those experiences may be mortifying in the moment, and yes. then become some of our favorite church members. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, uh, Tim's story brought to mind a memory for me too that I'd like to share as today's entry in the Radio Family Journal. The Radio Family Journal with Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it. On the Appleseed. I'm the oldest child in my family, and at the time of the thing I'm going to tell you here, there were five of us, five siblings, all more or less adults. And also at the time of the thing I'm going to tell you here, my second child had just been born. Now, the thing I want to tell you about that happened in a time when there were five of us, siblings, all more or less adults, and at the time when my second child had been born, is the coming into our family of my stepdad, Dennis. We knew right away that Dennis was a great, great guy, super devoted to my mom, in it for keeps, whatever may come. And he promised all the in sickness and health and for richer and for poorer stuff that you promise in a journey like the one my mom and Dennis were about to take as a married partnership. What the wedding vows didn't include, and perhaps should have, was the rest of the package. Us. For a guy who had never had any children, Dennis suddenly became a parent of five adult siblings, and some of them had spouses, and at least one of them had a couple of kids. And we're kind of a lot, my siblings and me and our spouses and our 
Kids, I remember the first time we took a trip to visit my mom and Dennis, just for dinner. They lived four hours away, and we made the drive for dinner, but we also bought a new computer on that trip. And I asked if maybe there was room in mom and Dennis's house where I could set it up for a minute to make sure everything worked. So into the sanctity of Dennis's office, I brought a monitor and a CPU and a keyboard and a mouse and a tangle of cords, and I plopped it all down in a heap of cardboard boxes and instruction manuals and electronics, and I set it up all precariously amid the stuff on Dennis's desk, and all the time my two little ones were running about making kid noise, and, well, it was a lot. Dennis, we noticed, disappeared for an hour or so that evening, and we learned later that the craziness and confusion of his insta-family had been a little too much, and that he needed to get out of the house for a bit. It was nothing out of the ordinary, really, for a visit to Mom's house, but... Well, I could have been a lot gentler in my introduction to my stepfather. It was a bit of a rocky beginning. We came from different worlds, for sure. Dennis was a university math professor. Me and my siblings, well, we're all musicians. And because as musicians, we are self-centered boneheads, we might have been guilty of thinking that music is the great window on the universe, that music opens it all up and almost everything else, including and even especially math, closes it all down. But that's ridiculous. And slowly, Dennis opened up to us and we opened up to him. He changed the way we saw stuff. For example, we musicians began to see that the window on the universe afforded to Dennis because of his interest in math was expansive and revelatory. It's like magic. It's like music. Dennis found all sorts of ways to wrap his arms around his new family. When he was asked to pick the theme music for his televised math class at the university, he picked a song from the catalog of the rock and roll band fronted by his new stepson, Dave, my brother. Imagine Jimi Hendrix writing the theme music for Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, and you'll have it about right. As hard as Dennis worked to connect with his new children, his connection with his grandchildren seemed to come a little more effortlessly. When my tiny son, Skyler, started good-naturedly calling Dennis, Dennis the Menace, Dennis came up with Skyler the Beguiler, and those nicknames stuck for decades. When my brother's tiny son, Max, was bored on the front lawn at the Cromwell Farm in Minnesota at a family reunion, Dennis stuck a couple of pencils in the ground about nine feet apart and wondered aloud with Max if they, from where they sat on the lawn, could tell how far the pencils were from each other without measuring. Unbeknownst to little Max, Dennis was teaching him math, and Max wasn't bored anymore. It's sometimes hard to get into the space of someone who's different from you, someone who was thrust into your space without your permission and whether you like it or not. But we figured it out, and Dennis became part of our family, part of the dearest circle of relationships in our lives. Dennis passed away early in 2022. We sat by his bedside in his final hours, his family, in love and dedication and loyalty and companionship. Who could have seen that coming during that first botched dinner visit so many years ago? But wouldn't you know it? Sometimes people who are different from each other, thrust into each other's lives, dedicate themselves to making it work. And among people like that, sometimes, miraculously, it does. Radio Family Journal of Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it, on the Appleseed. Thanks for joining me for that entry in the Radio Family Journal. It's been such a pleasure to chat about that Tim Lowry story about the pastor job that his dad got in spite of or maybe even because of Miss Gim, somebody who uh, appeared at first to be an adversary but later wound up being an unlikely ally. It was a pleasure to talk about that story with uh, Brian and Lacey. Guys, thanks so much for joining me. So fun to be here. Yeah, thank you. And, And after we're done, let's have that word in my office. (laughs) (laughs) First, a lot more to come this hour on the Appleseed.
It's a pleasure to be with you on today's episode of The Appleseed. We're listening to stories about people working together. We heard from Tim Lowry, a story about his dad's new job as a pastor in small-town Kentucky. And now we get to hear uh, an old-time radio classic, an adaptation of the 1951 film The African Queen, which itself is an adaptation of the 1935 novel. Now, the classic movie version starred Humphrey Bogart, who had always played gangsters and desperados, a working-class fella in all kinds of amazing tough-guy scenarios. And in The African Queen, he plays kind of a gruff, lone wolf steamboat captain named Charlie Allnut. And his character is thrown in with another strong-willed character, a Christian missionary named Rose Sayre. In the famous movie, Rose Sayre was played by the great Catherine Hepburn. And in this radio version, she's played by another movie star, Greer Garson, with a cold and educated British accent. And you can probably guess that the story is about how these two come together. And they do it through planning an audacious attack on the German Navy during World War I. We're pleased to introduce you to The African Queen from 1952, a year after the famous film stormed into cinemas. Two Hollywood legends in a beat-up steamboat on the Appleseed. Well, miss, so far so good. Here we are, safe and sound, as you might say. A nice shady spot and a nice lonesome spot. The question is, what next? Quite, Mr. Allnut. We got heaps of grub aboard, 2,000 cigarettes, and two cases of gin. Gin? Why, we could sit out the war here if we wanted to. All the comforts of home, miss, including running water. (laughs) Mr. Allnut, we simply cannot remain off a backwater island until the war is over. Can't we now, miss? Well, you've got the map there. Show me a way out and I'll take it. The British will certainly launch an attack. Now, uh, the only question is, which way will they come? Uh, uh, from the sea, maybe. Up the railway to Limbazi. Well, that'll put all them Germans between them and us. Might not our troops come up from the Congo? Miss, miss, look. You see this lake on the map? Yes. That's a hundred miles of lake. And there ain't nothing gonna cross it while the Louise is there. The Louise? She's a hundred-ton steamer, miss, and German. She's boss of the lake because she's got six-pounders. The biggest guns in Central Africa. Oh, Uh, We're in a bit of a fix, miss, whichever way you look at it. This river runs into that lake, does it not? Yes, miss. Yes, it does. But if you've got any ideas of getting there in this launch, you better get rid of them. Why? Well, you look at the map, miss. This here is Shona. The Germans have a fort at Shona. They blow us right out of the water, and before that, there's a rapid. Twenty miles of water, it's like it was coming out of a fire hose. But it has been done. Yes, miss, in a canoe, a fellow named Spengler, he almost... Mr. Allnut, uh, what did you say was in those wooden boxes? Them? Them was blasting gelatin, miss. Is it dangerous? <laughs> Bless you, no. That's safety stuff. Takes a detonator to set it off. And what are those long torpedo-like things? Uh, more stuff for the mine. Them's uh, oxygen and hydrogen cylinders, miss. Mr. Allnut, uh, you're a machinist, aren't you? Uh, kind of a fixer, miss. Jack of all trades, like they say. Could you make a torpedo? How's that, miss? Uh, could you make a torpedo? A torpedo? Ask me to make a dreadnought and do it upright, miss. A torpedo? <laughs> you, you really don't know what you're asking. Why, there just ain't nothing so complicated as the inside of a torpedo. It's got gyroscopes and compressed air chambers. Oh, but they don't need to make it go, aren't they? Well, we've got the African Queen. How's that, miss? And if we were to uh, to fill those cylinders with that blasting gelatine and then uh, then fix them so that they'd stick out over the end of this boat, and then uh, then if we were to run this boat against the side of a ship, well, uh, well, they'd go off just like a torpedo would, wouldn't they? Yeah, yeah, that's right, miss. Well, then we could uh, we could point the launch towards a ship, and uh, just before she hit, we could dive off, couldn't we? Sure, sure, miss. Absolutely, only there ain't nothing to torpedo. Oh, but there is. Is what? The Louisa. The Louisa? Oh, now, don't talk silly, miss. You can't do that. Honest, you can't. I told you before, we can't get down the river. Spangler did. In a canoe. If a German did it, we can do uh, it. Not in no launch, we can't. Well, how do you know? You've never tried. Well, I never tried shooting myself in the head, neither. In other words, in other words, Mr. Allnut, you're refusing to help your country in her hour of need. Uh, I wouldn't put it that way. 
Just how would you put it? Uh, all right, miss. Have it your own way. But don't blame me for what happens. Very well, then. Let's get started. Well, you mean now? Now. But there ain't two hours of daylight left, miss. We can go a long way in two hours, Mr. Allnut. But the boiler, the fire's gone out practically. We can't move till we get the old kettle boiling again. Well, you're well stocked with firewood. Do so. Oh. Refusing to help your country in an hour of need. Could you make a torpedo, Mr. Allnut? Well, do so, Mr. Allnut. Uh, did you say something, Mr. Allnut? Mean, miss, I, I didn't say nothing, miss. This is Sam Payne, and you're listening to a bit of old-time radio drama, a radio version of the classic story, The African Queen. Made in 1952, it seems like Tough going for Charlie Allnut and Miss Sayer so far, right? But you got to imagine that there's something coming up, some sort of compromise maybe, that makes it possible for these two to work together when the stakes are high. And the first compromise is the jettisoning of some of Mr. Allnut's habits. All that gin he talks about, that all goes overboard the first chance Miss Sayer gets. But there's more than that to bring these two unlikely folks together. And some of it has to do with the way that Miss Sayer kind of comes alive, leans into the adventure they're having together. It turns out she has a heart made for that stuff. Well, Miss, how'd you like it? Like it? White water, rapid. Oh, I never dreamed that it... <laughs> I don't blame you for being scared, Miss. Ain't nobody in his right mind ain't scared of white water. I was about to say that I never dreamed that any mere physical experience could be so Stimulating. Huh? How's that, miss? I've seldom known such excitement. A few times in my dear brother's sermons, when the spirit was really upon him, I felt... Well, so... you mean you want to go on? But of course I do. Miss, you're crazy. Oh, I must say, I'm filled with admiration for your skill, Mr. Allnut. Do you suppose that after I practice steering a bit more, that someday I might try? Miss, let me tell you something. Those rapids back there ain't nothing to what's in front of us. Oh, I can hardly wait. But, miss... Oh, I know that I've had a taste of it. I don't wonder that you love boating, Mr. Allnut. Boating? <laughs> Excuse me, miss, I need a drink. Rose Sayer, learning that she loves the exhilaration that comes from the incredibly dangerous cascades and rapids on the river. That adventurous, headstrong spirit is an important ingredient in this adventure. But Mr. Allnut brings important things to the adventure, too. He's been on the river for years and possesses the know-how that only hard experience can provide. Miss Sayer's audacious ideas and Mr. Allnut's know-how make them a formidable team. And as it turns out, having a little compassion for each other, showing each other respect, is a good way to grow a relationship, too. Once Mr. Allnut and Miss Sayer realize they're on the same side, well, their friendship takes off. That realization, though, of how close they really are only comes when both of them work harder than they ever thought they could. For days now, the journey of the African Queen has been halted. Across the breadth of the river, like a towering living wall, is a jungle of grass and reeds, an endless morass, through which a thousand different channels twist and turn. And somewhere among them, Rose and Charlie are hopelessly lost. Charlie, please, let me pole for a while. Ah, uh, oh, it's no use, Rosie. All the channels we've lost, all the squirming and turning we've done. This river's crazy. Crazy as I am. Oh, Charlie. Sorry, old girl. Well, the only thing that will put the roses back in our cheeks is to get out of these reeds. I'll go over the side again. You pull, Rosie, and I'll push. Just keep her straight if you can, Rosie. Head her through the grass. There must be a main channel. Mustn't there? It just... It just can't disappear. I'm sick of talking about it, Rosie. Or searching for it, or even... Charlie! Ah, leeches! Bloodsuckers! Ah, you're covered with them! Ooh, my legs, Rosie, my arms. Ooh, the little beggars. Pull them off me. Rosie, help me. Oh, yes, yes, no, 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 don't touch them, don't. 
Who's salt, Rosie? Yes. You pull them off of the head, stay in. Poison the blood. Get the salt. Yes, dear, yes, I mean... Pour it over me. Pour the salt over me. I am, Charlie, I am. They can't stand Uh, the salt. uh, See, Rosie? uh, Look, they're they're dropping off. Oh, my poor Charlie. There's anything in the world I hate. It's leeches. Oh, the filthy little devil. You're bleeding. Uh, It ain't nothing. The salt will kill the poison. Well... Here I go. Charlie, no. You're not going over again. No, no. Take the pole, Rosie. We'll try again. Dear Lord, we've come to the end of our journey. I pray for you to be merciful. Judge us not for our weakness, but for our love. And open the doors of heaven for Charlie and me. It's over, sweetheart. It is. The storm's over. Open your eyes, dear. It's daylight. I I wonder if I dreamed it, Charlie. If it was just a a nightmare. I saw animals and and birds running, screaming. It's nothing you dreamed, Rosie. I never seen such a storm. Charlie, what are you doing? You mustn't work, dear. You're not strong enough yet to. Rosie, I ain't doing anything. Open your eyes and see. I'm just sitting here next to you. But we're... we're moving. Moving? Moving? Rosie, look! Charlie, where are we? Rosie, dear, we're on the lake. <gasps> oh, the rain did it. It filled the channels. Look, the rain and the wind just lifted the old queen up and carried her over the mud. We've cleared the, re- the weeds, Rosie. Oh, look back there. Oh, we couldn't have been a hundred yards from it last night when we give up hope. Oh, Rosie, Rosie. Oh, let's try and build a fire if we can. And get the engine started. And go right out to the middle, away from these reeds, where we can where we can breathe again. Sure, sweetheart, sure. We'll be out of here in a jiffy. The prayer of Miss Sayer, who by now we're calling Rosie, is answered. A storm washes in and moves the African queen into the lake where rests the German navy and the great warship Luisa. Our heroes prepare for the attack, but the storm breaks up the ship, and the two are rescued, or rather captured, by their German adversaries, and they face possible execution. And just how, Fräulein, did you propose to sink the Königin Luisa? Why, with torpedoes. Torpedoes? <laughs> yes, Mr. Allnut made them. Made them? Amazing. Charlie... Tell them how you made the torpedoes. <laughs> well, you, you see, what I did was I, I took the heads off uh, two cylinders of oxygen. I filled them up with live explosives, about 200 weight. Now, that was easy enough, but it was the detonators took some doing. And you know what I used? Cartridges and nails and blocks of soft wood. Go on, please. <laughs> then I took the two cylinders and hung them port and starboard in the bow of the African Queen. So it's when we rammed you... And where is the African queen? She sank last night in the storm. Too bad. I should like to have seen those torpedoes. Perhaps you will. They'll still be floating around somewhere nearby. Yeah, they could still sink this ship, Rosie. Enough of this torpedo nonsense. It's ganz klar, die beiden Spione sind. Ich schlage vor, wir geben in fünf Minuten Frist, diese Lügen zurückzuziehen. You have five minutes in which to reconsider. Tell us the truth, or you will both be hanged. We've told the truth. Haven't we, Charlie? Yeah. And we, uh, we got a favor to ask your honor. Well? Well, uh, uh, you're the captain, I guess. I am. Well, uh, uh, then you could marry us. Oh, Charlie, what a lovely idea. What kind of craziness is this? Come on, Captain, it won't even take five minutes. And it'll mean such a lot to the lady. If you wish it, absolutely. Very well. Uh, what are the names again? 
Charles. Rosie. Oh. Uh, Rose. Da ist eine Bibel auf dem Brett hinter dem Schreibtisch. Ja, Herr Lieutenant. Ich sehe sie. Bring sie her. Charlie, look. A Bible. Look at me, both of you. Do you, Charles, take this woman to be your lawful wedded wife? Yes, sir. Do you, Rose, take this man to be your lawful wedded husband? I do. Then, by the authority vested in me by His Imperial Majesty Kaiser Wilhelm II, I pronounce you are man and wife. Proceed with the execution. Ab mit den beiden Gefangenen nach Achtern und los mit der Hinrichtung! Charlie, my husband. Rosie, Rosie. You will follow me now, at once. Charlie, the torpedoes! Mrs. Allnut, can you keep swimming? Oh, yes. I never felt so good in my life. We blew her up, Johnny. <laughs> I guess we did, Rosie. The wreckage of the African Queen, that did it. They ran the Louisa right into it. How do you feel, Mr. Allnut? Pretty good for an old married man. The African Queen, an old-time radio adventure classic. And if that adventure steers you toward the 1951 film with Humphrey Bogart and Katherine Hepburn, we wouldn't feel a bit bad. That film is pretty terrific. We hope you've had as much fun as we had today on this hour of The Appleseed. And remember, next time you have to work hard to do a big job with people you don't know, people whose differences might have you a little nervous, bear in mind that you might just find your next best friend or your greatest ally. In fact, Maybe you've had that experience or an experience like it, and I bet it made for some great stories. Open your mouth and tell them. In fact, tell them to us. You can send us an email at theappleseed at byu.edu. Again, that's theappleseed at byu.edu. It's been a pleasure to be part of this hour with you on The Appleseed, where great stories can change your family's world. We are pleased and proud to be among the many shows in the BYU Radio family of programs. And you can find this episode or any episode from our archive on the BYU Radio app at byuradio.org slash Appleseed, or by Googling the Appleseed podcast. I'm Sam Payne, and I can't wait to be with you again on The Appleseed. Appleseed.